Hello, and welcome to the Kick Aspirational Podcast. My name is David Vanderveen. I've been fortunate enough to build businesses around the world with thousands of entrepreneurs. You can find out more about me at davidvanderveen.com. But, you know, as I've traveled the world and, and had these opportunities to meet and work and, and alongside a lot of very interesting people, the question that I keep getting is, how can I create the life that I want? How can I create the brand, the behaviors, the, the culture that motivate and drive me? And so this podcast is dedicated to those questions. It's interviewing other people who are on that journey, as well as telling some of my own stories that I hope will help anyone who's wanted to start their own company, create their own brand, build their own life, figure out how to do it for themselves. The simple answer is there are no simple answers, but I think that if we work together and if we interact and if we workshop, we can figure out great ways to move forward in life and create a life worth living, a life with purpose and meaning, a life that makes us all a little bit more kick aspirational. Welcome to the Kick Aspirational Podcast. I'm Dave Vanderveen. Today we've got SEAC John Troxel, or John as we call him. He's a, a military ambassador for the Nirvana Super brand. We're really excited to have him today. I'll read his bio sec. He's, he's had quite an impressive career. He's a retired U.S. States Army senior non-commissioned officer, served as the third senior listed advisor, the chairman joint chiefs of staff. This position made him the most senior enlisted member of the United States Armed Forces. It's pretty high up there, John. Um, he enlisted in the U.S. Army in September 1982 as an armored reconnaissance specialist and graduated from one station unit training at Fort Knox, Kentucky. Served over 37 years in the U.S. Army. Thank you for your service. Thank you. And uh, Troxel's five combat tours of duty included making the uh, combat parachute jump and, and service in Operation Just Cause in Panama. Uh, you served in Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm, two tours. Yeah. In uh, Operation Iraqi Free Freedom and Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan. So you've been in some sandboxes, uh, you've been in the jungle, you've uh, you've kind of done it all here. Yeah, kind of done it all. Yeah, that's amazing. And then since your retirement, you started PME Hard Consulting. Yes. Which is that's a combination of, of fitness and and nutrition and and how to be your yeah, best. Yeah, it's so it's it's uh, solutions for overall better human performance. Oh wow. Whether that's through fitness, yeah, nutrition, leadership, everything through human performance to optimize organizational excellence. Wow. Whether that's in a military formation, business, law enforcement, whatever it is. Wow. It's a holistic approach to getting after overall better uh, organizational excellence. And, and where do people find out about that? Do you have a website that they yeah, can Yeah, they can go to pmehard.com. P-M-E-Hard, P-M-E-Hard.com. Yes, P-M-E means physically, mentally, and emotionally. I came up with this acronym phrase uh, during the surge in Iraq. <clears throat> When I know, you know, we were there for 15 months. We suffered 54 killed in action, over 500 severely wounded. Wow. And I knew that we just could not be tough. Yeah. Physically, we had to be ready for the conditions in the enemy. Mentally and emotionally, we had to be ready for the enemy, but also for the losses that we could take, yeah. but also some of the horrific stuff that you see happening to innocent civilians on the battlefield. Right. And what, what we saw there in terms of uh, women being uh, tortured and killed, children being tortured and killed by these insidious terrorists. So I came up with PME Hard as a concept to be in peak operation 
operating capability to face the conditions we could face on the worst day of our life in combat. Right. And now, metaphorically, having peak operating capability to face the conditions we could face on the corporate battlefield right. or in everyday life. Wow. So that's how I kind of came up with that. That's a great that's a great acronym and I think it's a great metaphor for all of us. I mean Hopefully, most of us won't go through the the, the level of, of difficulty that you've had to go yeah, through in those yeah. in those conditions. But we all face some condition. We all face something we have to overcome. Absolutely. And so it's important for all of us to have that that mental toughness, that physical toughness, and the kind of and the, that the emotional. Mindset. Yeah, yeah. So how much? I mean, when you're when you're talking about this, obviously there's a lot of physical conditioning that happens through military training and, and preparedness. How does the military deal with the mental part of it? Is, does, I mean, is is there mental conditioning that the military does as well? Well, we're getting much better at it. Um, for years, you know, in my 38-year career, I never really paid attention to it till the end of my career. Yeah. And, uh, and it was my wife that kind of told me, hey, look, in a year, you're getting ready to retire. And this whole Pentagon thing, this whole senior enlisted leader of the universe is going to be over. Right. And it's going to be you and me. So, so and who I, are you then, right? Yeah. And she's like, I can't deal with you with all this anger you have. Oh, wow. So I just thought, you know, being a sergeant major, I'm supposed to be an angry dude, you know, and, and enforcing discipline, you know, and stuff like that. But what I didn't realize is that I had repressed anger. I had emotional baggage from these five combat tours I had. And so I went and saw a behavioral health specialist. And it was the best thing I ever did. Oh, wow. I became a better leader. Yep. I became a better husband, a better father, a better grandfather. Wow. Because now I was getting after an aspect of my health that I had been pushing aside. And so... Was, was, was a lot of that awareness? Was it just being yeah. aware of it and knowing that you were doing Absolutely. it? Absolutely. It was it was bringing out that I am aware of what I'm doing. And then learning skills through breathing and everything. So running out of ammunition in combat is a, <laughs> is a bad day. Yeah, that's, that's one and of the worst so, things that can happen, right? You know, that, that's when, you know, things can really mentally and emotionally go bad out a coffee creamer in your kitchen after you come back for combat is not a bad thing, but it can trigger, <laughs> but it can trigger the, the same, same response, right? The same response as running out of ammunition in combat. So we've got to continue to get after the mental and emotional aspect of taking care of our warriors and our veterans, but more importantly, for every American citizen to be able to deal and cope with some of the things that they go through in everyday life. So the military is getting a lot better with this mental and emotional wellness, right. trying to eliminate any stigmas associated with seeking help, right. but also making that a part of every day we do physical training in the morning. Okay, well, let's continue to get after the mental and emotional aspect through mindfulness, through meditation, right. and things like that. So we're getting better. We've got a ways to go in the military, but we're getting much better. Well, and it seems like, too, I mean, you're just starting, I mean, not just starting, but it feels like with the most recent wars we had, PTSD became something that we actually started paying attention to. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I have a lot of friends in Special Forces. My college roommate was a former Navy SEAL. He was a Navy SEAL and then worked yeah. in, in uh, you know, some other uh, military groups afterwards. And, um, you know, I, I noticed with him and some of his friends that 
some of the difficulties. He, he was killed ultimately, but some of the things that I noticed with some of his friends is, you know, their marriages haven't survived. They've struggled to to shift from personally from the things they had to deal with over there to civilian life when they come home. Sure. Because the transition's not easy. And, and you know, early it was seems like one of the strategies was, well, just put him in, you know, a city in Germany for, for a month and let him decompress and then bring him home. Yeah. Let him take it out there. So the, 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 to that point, so we call it crossing over. When, when the warrior goes into battle and they kiss their family goodbye to get on that plane to go, they know that there is a chance they won't be coming home. Right. And in order to deal with that day in and day out, that this might be your day that you kill, we call it crossing over. Mentally and emotionally, you cross over that death is inevitable in combat. Right. And you can't control it. Right. Now, don't get me wrong. Physically, everybody wants to come home and sure. you want to live, okay? But you know that the enemy gets a vote. So mentally and emotionally, there's this crossing over, which is why you see a lot of heroic stuff right. in combat. Right. Right. Because when, when we That's put where your mind is then. It's like, yeah. Absolutely. Now, where the problem runs in, the vast majority of warriors survive combat. Right. And they come back. So now you have to cross back over right. that you're going to live every day. And so a normal trip to the grocery store could be what we call a battle drill six, enter a building, clear a room. Because right. you're going into a place where there's a lot of people with confusion. Yeah. You know, grocery carts sideways in the aisles. Sure. Your peripheral vision is blocked because of the aisles. And that can trigger some of the things. So when we talk about crossing back over, it is imperative that we continue to get the necessary mental and emotional help right. to our warriors so that they can come back and reintegrate back with their families right. without all of this baggage. Well, it's, it's funny you think about like World War II or, or Vietnam yeah. or, you know, or Korea where, you know, people went away to war, they came home. And, you know, I remember with some of my great uncles and my dad, they just don't talk about it. Right? Yeah. Is that an effective tool or are we finding better tools than just don't talk well, about I it? Well, I think for the most part, that's not an effective tool. But yeah. um, there's a necessary... Uh, reaction that a, a com combat veteran will have where, and it, this was me, my wife would catch me doing this. I'd get up in the morning and I would sit in a dark room yeah. with my cup of coffee. But I was reflecting and I was unpacking this emotional baggage that I was carrying around. Sure. So I think that's a necessary thing to do. Now, if that becomes a systemic thing that the veteran is doing, that's where problems can come in. Sure. So I think... Uh, the strategy should be to try and get it out. Now, don't get me wrong. A lot of veterans don't like about to talk about some of the horrific stuff that they've been through course, yeah. or that they've had to do, right. you know? But the, the effective technique for me is talking about it. You know, on the 15th of June, 2007, was probably my most glorious day in combat when we fought off two ambushes and we ended up killing 15 terrorists. And where was that? That was in Iraq, Iraq. in Husseinia, Iraq. Right. Exactly one month later, the enemy gets a vote. My patrol was hit by an Iranian-made explosive form penetrator that killed one of my soldiers, severely wounded another, and a bunch of our troops were wounded. So the enemy got back. So the point is, you have these highs in combat, but you, then you have these tragedies. And, and through it all, you have to deal with that 
and develop coping strategies, whether that's through therapy yeah. or whatever. Or, you know, some veterans may need service dogs or service animals, right. or they may need pharmaceuticals. But the bottom line is we've got to eliminate a stigma associated with a service member or a veteran or anybody in life going to seek mental and emotional help. Right. Doesn't mean they can't go back and fight again. Of course. Doesn't mean they can't be a peak operating capability with a, a corporation or whatever. It just means that they need a this kind of strategy and assistance to keep them at peak operating capability. That's amazing. I, I think a lot of it too is, is people being aware that it's happening and it's not just happening to them. They're not alone. That's right. There are tools, there are people who can help and that, that, that this can get solved. Absolutely, yeah. There are so many avenues out there for assistance. And it's not a sign of weakness right. to say, hey, I might need to talk to somebody. Right. It's a sign of strength. Right. You know, because especially if it's someone that's still on active duty and they're in a combat zone, if they are keeping this from their teammates, that they may have these issues and everything, this could end up being a liability uh, at, at the point of friction, you know, sure. against a, uh, in a fight with the enemy. So it's more a sign of strength to say, I need help and everything. Let's, let's resolve this. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes, sir. So tell me about some of your mental toughness. You know, I, I, I know you parachuted into Panama. Um, and this was to help Noriega find a new home? Absolutely, yeah, yeah to uh, bring Noriega to justice. And yeah. uh, so... Tell, tell me about the mental toughness, like you're in a, I mean, coming out of a C4 or some parach- a plane that you're parachuting yeah. out of. What was that like? You you don't know what you're landing in, you, don't, you, know, you have an idea, but what's that like? Yeah, so, you know, we do so many sets and repetitions and training for that kind of scenario that when the call came and it was a no this was 1989 no notice call I kissed my wife goodbye that morning it was during the Christmas holidays and did I, she know where you're going no yeah she, and you know there's did no you cell know where phones you're going? not initially yeah uh, and uh, but when I found out yeah. I was like okay my wife will find out sooner or later that yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm parachuting into yeah. combat this will be in the news in a minute and, yeah. and that's where she found out I was right. in combat but so we were kind of numb to the process but the instincts took over from the sets and repetition of preparing for it of course, yeah. that when I bailed out of that airplane over Torrios Airport in Panama and the Rangers were already on the military airfield kicking the crap out of the Panamanian Defense Forces right. so I knew this was the real deal we just got to rely on our instincts hit the ground get on our equipment get it into operation get it up to our assault objective and continue to get after defeating the enemy so instincts took over how long did it take from the time you left that plane until you had kind of taken control of Panama? It took, a, oh, it took about four or five days. Yep. The, we, we parachuted in on the 20th of December, yep. 1989. Christmas Eve, it was basically, we had the enemy basically neutralized. Now, Noriega's Dignity Battalions, his kind of ruffian gangsters. Secret guys, yeah. Yeah, secret guys. Secret they were still police. out there doing some terroristic kind of stuff. But for the most part, Noriega himself had holed up in the Papal Nuncio uh, chapel in downtown Panama and everything. So it was basically over by Christmas. Okay. So in five days, we had the country back under control. But it came at a cost. It, you know, the, with the 82nd Airborne Division, we had four paratroopers killed in action. Overall operation, there were 18 Americans killed with several hundred wounded. Wow. So wow. it came at a price. And think of this. 
the day before, the day, the, the day we got alerted, everybody in that division thought we were going to be on half-day holiday schedule. Oh, wow. And the next day, we were fighting in combat. Wow. And then for four of those young men, they gave their life yeah. in defense of freedom 24 hours after we had deployed or over the next five days. So You'll be able to flip a switch effectively. Absolutely. And so when we talk about crossing over, I mean, when all of a sudden, back then, no cell phones, uh, the landlines get cut yep. out of uh, uh, for security reasons. Yep. And it's just like, well, I hope my wife gets notified on what I'm doing, but yeah, yeah. I'm not coming home tonight, and I'm not going to be coming home for a while right. because we have this enemy that we have to defeat here. So yeah. I got to go yeah. do my job. Absolutely. That's amazing. Um, now you started at a battalion level as a sergeant major, mm -hmm. and then you moved up to SEAC. Yeah. Explain to us what SEAC is and how, because this, so this, this podcast, Kick Aspirational, is about breaking through barriers in life. Yeah. Um, so mindset, all this stuff plays into it. You've, you've broken through some barriers in the military. Like, Absolutely. These are some pretty big ceilings that you're kind of breaking through. Yeah. What's SEAC? How did you break through it? And how did your work and your mindset change when you went from, you know, Sergeant Major, the guy kicking everyone's butt, yeah. you know, being getting getting prepared for, for, for battle and yeah. for being in the military versus serving the Joint Chiefs and the things that you had to do at this higher level? Yeah, so that's a great question, and I'm glad you asked it. The senior enlisted advisor to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is the senior enlisted person in the Department of Defense. That position, you advise the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, as well as the Secretary of Defense. Wow. And so for me, uh, for 43 months, I advised Marine General Joe Dunford. He was my immediate boss. And then Secretary Jim Mattis. Yep. Um, I started off with Secretary Ash Carter, you know, God yep. rest his soul for the first year. Next two years, excuse me, was Jim Mattis. I finished out my last five months advising Mark Milley, the current chairman. Yep and Mark Esper, the Secretary of Defense. So when you're at a battalion level, you are clearly at the tactical level, and you are focused on the battle task that that battalion and the soldiers have to operate on. Right. As you go up through the ranks, you move from the tactical to the operational to the strategic level. And when you're the SEAC, yeah. there's two, two things that I focused on. Delivering the why to the troops all over the world. What were we doing with our national defense and our national military strategy? Why were they in places like Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Yemen, South Korea, Colombia, all of these places that were contentious? And giving the pulse of the force back to the chairman, to SecDef, and the administration. Letting them to know what was going on with the, the troops yeah. at the ta at the in the field at the tactical and operational level. So, I mean, I had carte blanche to go anywhere in the world. My battle space was the globe. And I tried for four years, 270 days out of the year, to get to where the troops were at. So if I had to go in front of Congress, I could speak from a position of experience. Right. If I had to advise President Obama or President Trump, I could come in with facts on the ground right. based on what I was doing. So, um you're more of an advisor at that level as a hands-on sure. kind of person at the battalion level. So the 20 years that I was a command sergeant major, I had to evolve as I moved up through the tactical, operational, to strategic. Because at, at the strategic level, it's no longer about battle drills and haircuts and cigarette yeah. butts. And it's not all the tactical stuff. It's, no. It's about... It's about what, can, what information or... Uh, 
nuggets can I give the chairman and executive so they can give best military advice to the president of the United States? And you had a lot of changing tactics and strategies when you're right. St- Absolutely. When, when you started in the Middle East, you know, especially with the Iraq and then Afghanistan, yeah, yeah. Afghanistan, Iraq wars. Learned a lot there, right? Absolutely. How yeah. Does, how, what were some of the biggest changes in strategy that you had to learn to communicate to the soldiers from, you know, maybe where they started as a, as a conventional force, moving into more of a, a less conventional. Uh, yeah. Occupier. So, they, to for them to understand, uh, and I know we're going to talk about the book in a second, yeah, but yeah, I talk yeah, about yeah. this yeah. in the book, but uh, that the battlefield is dynamic and that it changes every day. Right. And the enemy is whoever it is, whether it's a nation state or it's a non-state actor. They are going to look for tactics, techniques, and procedures right. that will allow them to have a competitive advantage. Right. So the, my message to the troops is you have to be a learning warrior every day. Right. You have to study the enemy because the enemy is studying you. You have to refine your battle drills and your techniques and procedures on how you get after things. And you have to continue, especially over a long tour, fight the devil known as complacency. Right. And... And again, because the, the enemy will evolve and they will look for ways to gain advantage. Looking for weakness, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Gaps and seams in our security and how we're operating, and they will look to exploit that. Yeah, they're, they're not, it's not a head-to-head battle. You're no. not, it's not a conventional warfare. You're, they're looking for flanking strategies, ways to get in there and, and infiltrate. And, and they're looking for potentially soft targets. Right. Somebody that ha- is complacent, that is, well, we've done this for three weeks straight, and haven't been attacked, so all of a sudden they get into this monotony, and the enemy picks up on it, and that's when they will pounce. It's predictable. Yeah. 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 So, so tell me about your book because I know we've got this. You've got this great new book, Surrender or Die, and uh, so this is. You hold it up to your camera. I'm going to hold it up to mine too. Yeah. Surrender or Die. This is a new book that's just coming out. Yeah. Reflections of a Combat Leader. Tell me about Surrender or Die and what? Why did you write it? What's it about? What can we learn from this? So this is my memoir okay. from a guy that grew up in Davenport, Iowa, and was kind of a Walter Mitty, an ineffectual daydreamer <laughs> yeah. that uh, had thoughts of being like Patrick Willis and being a, an NFL football player, but didn't have the talent or the drive to, to be that. Um, to being from that to rising up and becoming the senior enlisted person in the Department of Defense and serving in five combat tours. So I, this is my memoir. I talk about my military career, but I also talk about the challenges that I had to face uh, in combat. I talk about post-traumatic stress disorder. I talk about, you know, a couple years ago, surrender or die is a phrase that I used in a quote that I kind of gave publicly to ISIS and any other terrorists. And I told them they had two options. They could surrender or die. And we are, the United States is a peace-loving nation. If they surrender, we will treat them humanely, provide them due process in a court of law. But let there be no doubt, if they choose not to surrender, then it's die. Then we're going to kill them with extreme prejudice, whether that's dropping bombs from the the greatest air force on the planet, shooting them from the greatest army or greatest marine corps, or if need be, beating them to death with our military shovels, right, our entrenching right, tools. Yeah, yeah. And uh, when I said that, it did what I hoped it do. It inspired the troops. It intimidated ISIS. They even started talking smack about me on their French propaganda webpage, which I in turn started talking smack about them. But the bottom line, a leader at the strategic level, especially when you're the SEAC, 
the best thing you can do is provide inspirational themes and messages right. that the troops will take and grab onto and, and they will with run with it yeah. and, and continue to get after their mission. Now, when I did that, there were some in Washington, D.C. that thought I was using harsh language when I was talking about the realities of combat. And there were some in the Pentagon, too. It wasn't the chairman of SECDEF, but others. Well, in the end, this started down a, a roller coaster where I ended up getting suspended pending an investigation because of toxic language, um, harsh, uh, and, you know, the way I was deal, dealing business. Harsh it started with that, yeah. yeah. It started with that, but then it spilled over to some... Got political. Yeah, some, some mediocre performers right. who didn't like what I was saying who filed this complaint against. So for six months... I was uh, in a closet in the Pentagon, couldn't go into my office or anything. I talk about it in the book, too. Um, but in the end, I was exonerated for the most part. There were some minor things that I was held accountable for, nothing big, by General Dunford. He gave me a counseling statement. He put me back to work. And so I talk about surrender or die as, you know, now metaphorically, surrender or die is anything associated with interfering our, with our goals or in what we're doing in business yeah. or what I'm doing as a family, you know, and metaphorically or real threats have two options. They can surrender or die. So I just wanted to tell my story because you, you hear generals all the time to write memoirs and sure. admirals write memoirs, but you never see a senior enlisted guy do it. That's awesome. So I wanted to do it and it got released last week on Amazon and it is the number one new release in awesome. Afghan and Iraq war history. So I thank all the people out there that have bought the book and I'm hoping it brings the same inspiration that uh, my career brought to me and to my family. I was working with General Mattis. I mean, he's, uh, he's kind of a hero to Americans and uh, not kind of, he is a hero to Americans, and, and it was amazing that he served in a in a, in a uh, appointed position, I guess, in a, in a secretary position. So I, I, I have pictures with General Mattis and I in here, and General Dunford, but it was Nirvana for me, yeah. you know? When you talk about Nirvana, yeah. our company here, Nirvana for me was when I worked for General Joe Dunford and Secretary Jim Mattis at the same time, yep. because their entire focus was apolitical, and it was focused on defending our homeland, our freedom, and our way of life. Right. They weren't focused on any political agendas. Right. They refused to allow politics get into the Pentagon, and they were both the consummate elder statesmen that we needed to lead our armed forces. Yeah, I was impressed with Mattis, particularly when, you know, the president at the time maybe didn't understand the lack of, of uh, politics in, in, in the military and how he kind of stood up to that and, and yeah. made sure that, that that stayed the way it was. It was yeah, it was... It was phenomenal. It was the best two years of my 38-year career. So just to kind of put a, put a little bit of a bow on this, um, you, you deal a lot with nutrition now. You tour a lot, taking the troops around the world. How does HMB and, and Nirvana Super tie into what you talk about and, and being ready for the field and being ready with you know, all the lean muscle you need to be effective? So throughout my career, our commissaries and exchanges, the military has used food as a comfort item. Right. Every time someone leaves a unit, we have a big feast, and it's usually burgers, fries, and apple pies. Sure, sure. If somebody comes into the unit, we celebrate them coming in, and we have this feast and everything. And I saw in combat, in the just, excuse me, in Iraqi freedom during the surge, how the poor nutrition and the lack of focusing on functional fitness was harming my troops. Right. And it, it manifested itself in 
it's 130 degrees out. Uh, we won't carry the machine guns today. The most casually producing weapon that yeah. we have, we're not going to carry it because they're heavy, all right? Or our counter-improvised explosive device equipment. And I said, well, we're not, we're looking at this wrong. If this is what we need to carry in combat, and these are the weather conditions, and this is the enemy, then we need to adapt to that. How do we condition ourselves to be effective exactly. in that? Yeah. So my focus since I've been retired is getting better for you choices into our commissaries and exchanges and look at them more as a potential kind of Whole Foods kind of market. And let's get things like Nirvana right. with HMB, with D3, um, with electrolytes in better products that will allow for better performance and in the end will end up with better efficiency on the worst day of their life in combat so that's why that's why I am so proud to be a military ambassador with Nirvana and get this product to our troops you know maybe we could even get these these shots into the MREs that'd be uh, this this would be phenomenal I remember when I was in Iraq in during 2007 and 8 15 months every day out in that heat of, of Bakuba province in Iraq. What I would have give if I'm at a security halt on a patrol and taking yeah. a knee, that I could have pulled one of these out of my assault pack and chugged it, chugged it and down. Going. Yeah. yeah, but instead, I, you know, what we had then was these sugary energy drinks and everything that yeah. were over the long haul caused more harm than they did good. You right. know, right. so uh, yeah, this is exactly these need to be in a meal ready to eat so that the troops could have these. Pull them out of their pockets and chug them and keep moving. So to the troops out there, we're coming to you. I'm coming to a base near you soon, and we're going to get you after Nirvana Super products so that you can be best prepared to take down any threats to our freedom, our homeland, and our way of life. Boom. Thank you very much. Thank Jack you, brother. Jones. I really appreciate you coming today, John. Yeah, appreciate, appreciate your, you, your ambassador status yeah. with Nirvana and all the hard work you do for our troops, for our freedom, and, and for this company. Thank you Absolutely. very much. Absolutely. It's an honor. Cheers. Thank you for the Cheers, chance. Appreciate yes, sir. It. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for joining another episode of the Kick Aspirational Podcast. You know, the most important thing to remember is this is not a spectator sport. What I'm deeply interested in is hearing about your stories and answering your questions. What does your life look like? What are you trying to accomplish? What are the barriers that you're trying to break through? Because at the end of the day, the Kick Aspirational Podcast is about helping people break through barriers of their own. I'd love to hear what you're working on. I'd love to join you in your battles. And most importantly, whatever you do today, please, among all other things, be Kick Aspirational.